this is disgusting, but I remember this is how bad I was, how unhealthy I was. Sometimes I think when I tell my story and we talk about like my weight, people go, oh, yeah, she's a little bit overweight or whatever. They don't realize like what a bad state I was in for my age. I remember mum coming to work with me in the morning. So I, I would always leave and be heading to the office at 7 a.m., like very early, and she was in the car with me. And I'd stop at the service station and get a Red Bull, like a full sugar Red Bull, not a sugar-free one even. And I would be having a Red Bull and a cigarette in the car, like driving to the office in the morning with my mom in the passenger seat. And she never once said, you're disgusting, put that out, or that's just like she never said that to me. I can't, but blows my mind thinking back. Like no breakfast, up, out of bed, shower, Red Bull, cigarette on the way to the office because, of course, when you're overweight, you tell yourself you don't, you don't know why you're overweight. You don't really eat that much. You don't know why you're overweight. You don't eat breakfast. I don't eat breakfast, so I don't understand why I'm so overweight. Welcome back to the Yogi Triathlete Podcast. We are Jess and BJ, and we get super jazzed about sharing meaningful conversations with people looking, finding, and living their purpose. We are all here on purpose, and we all find our way to that purpose from different directions that create our unique story, the one that no one else can tell, the one that we came here to share. Today, we have Renee Kiley with us, a once pack-a-day smoker who worked and partied hardy for many years before transforming her life and becoming a professional triathlete in less than three and a half years. Renee was an active child. She honed in on the sport of basketball and played on the state and national level. So dedication and discipline were not her weaknesses, but for years, she channeled those strengths towards a workaholic life that left her fitness in the dust. She peaked at 104 kilograms, which for us Americans is 229 pounds. And her health was steadily declining until one day in 2013 when she spectated at the Noosa Triathlon. Renee never lost her love for athletics. It was just buried for a while. But on that day, as she watched the competitors swim, bike, run, and attain their goals, a spark was lit that would not be extinguished. I love this story that is about to unfold, and no one can tell it better than Renee. So without further ado, Renee Kylie, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, we're finally do- we're doing this. We're doing like it's it. all yeah, we're doing uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> we are doing it. That was an old okay. Some recording thing just came up as I'm saying like, <laughs> yes, we're nailing it. We're nailing it. <laughs> We've had some time zone and calendar issues, but we are here and we're getting this thing done. That's um, so before we jump into your story, let's jump into your day. Let's jump into right now. Uh, what was your training like today? Um, today I had swim squad this morning. So I'm part of the Hills District squad based in Brisbane, Australia, and our coach is based here as well. Um, so we start probably five mornings a week with swim and Cam, our coach is on deck. So this morning was actually quite a short swim. It was only about four kilometers, but it was a lot of, uh, strength work. Um, so it was quite difficult. And then I came home and I ate and I had a little nap. Um, now we're chatting and then I have a bit of a spicy little treadmill, well, not so little treadmill session this afternoon to do. Nice. So how long will that be on the treadmill? It's an hour and 10 total, um, warm up some turnovers, overspeed turnovers, and then 
some overspeed efforts. I think I've got 10 by three minutes, like faster than half Ironman pace with one minute recovery in between. Um, but the thing that makes that a little bit more complex here in Brisbane is the weather. <laughs> My treadmill is in the garage here, which has no air conditioning. And Brisbane is about anywhere every day in summer, it's about 30 to 35 degrees Celsius every day guaranteed. And it's always over 75% humidity. So I think the garage, if it's 30 degrees outside, I think the garage is about at least 35 degrees. So it always makes treadmill sets a little bit more difficult. Nice. That's going to be tasty. But that's Thanks, good. Yeah. That's good heat training, right? Yeah, that's, I will. <laughs> that's go what they with say. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's run with that. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, how did you, uh, how, so just, uh, General, how did you fuel? Like, how did you fuel this morning when you got up? And then, you know, what do you do have in between? Because I think a lot of people, like, don't know how to do uh, nutrition so well when you have that next session coming up on tap. Yeah, it is tricky sometimes, especially with running. Um, I am so boring with my nutrition. I eat almost, almost the same thing every single day. So, Every single morning, and I'm not even exaggerating, I know people say, oh, I eat this like every day for breakfast. I literally mean seven days a week when I'm training. I have a smoothie bowl in the morning after my swim. So as soon as I get home within like 15 minutes, um, smoothie bowl, I said banana, frozen berries, um, some acai, acai powder, some granola, pretty much a really big bowl. It's about actually 900 to 1,000 calories um, that I have with some protein powder and stuff in it. And then on a day like today, when I have a hard run is when lunch is a bit difficult. I would normally have – so I get my meals delivered. So I have, get my lunches and dinners delivered. So they get delivered fresh once a week. Um, which is really great for me personally with my history with eating and things like that. Um, but I find when I have a really hard run set in the afternoon, I don't like to eat uh, hot food um, and I don't normally like to eat meat um, at lunchtime. So I just had lunch before we spoke and I had some like rye crisp bread with cottage cheese, avocado, tomato, um, a couple of mandarins, a bit of fruit, um, and a coffee. And I try to keep it, that doesn't sound like much and it's actually not, but I try to keep it quite light before a hard run session and then have a big dinner tonight. Yeah. You had me at smoothie bowl. They're so good, <laughs> right? I, I, yeah. Yeah. Except when you start theory, to have Go ahead. I, ha I have this theory in life. <laughs> swimming, this is true. Swimming and smoothie bowls fix 99% of stuff. Like, Swimming just makes you feel great. Like whenever you're sad or whenever you're sore or whenever you're hot, like whatever, you go for a swim and guaranteed or anxious, anything, swimming always makes me feel better. And a smoothie bowl is just, I feel like it's the same. It's like my blankie. Like, I, yeah, I love it. It makes my tummy feel better. It settles me. It's nice and cool. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds really weird, but it's my thing. Oh, my God. I can't tell you how many times BJ will come home from the pool and he'll be like, that whole, man, that was such a monster set. But I just kept thinking about the smoothie bowl. I just kept it's thinking about true. the smoothie bowl. Like <laughs> Some people say, oh, let's go for breakfast, like after the swim. And I'm like. 
no, I just want to go home to my smoothie bowl. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. So let's talk a little bit, um, kind of staying on this whole training thing. Uh, we talked a little bit with Sky about this. We had your friend and teammate Sky uh, Monch on not too long ago, and she was the one who said, "Like you got to get Renee on." So, <laughs> and then boom, like I, I emailed you right away. But about getting, like you just got your, you just got that second workout this morning after the swim, and um, right, like do you get your workouts like? The, di- the night before. Oh, or- yes. Yeah. Sorry. It's so natural to me now. I didn't even know what you were talking about. And <gasps> right. Yes. Right. And because we say in Australia training sessions, sometimes when people say workout, I'm like, what are you talking oh, yeah. about? <laughs> about <laughs> my training session. Yes. So actually this morning, Cam had to leave in the last 15 minutes of our swim and I got out of the swim and I still didn't have my my next session. So I text him like, hello, remember me? What's my next training <laughs> session? <laughs> so, yes, um, I would say with Cam, five, yeah, five days a week, like I will, won't know what I'm doing next until we get out of the pool. Um, and then I guess the days that we don't swim, which are generally the days that we don't see him, he'll put them in like the night before what sessions we have. Yeah. Was that an adjustment when you went to start training with him? And how did that, because a, a lot of coaches and, and Beach is our head coach and that's, he gives maybe like two days at a time. A lot of times it's just with, with athletes that have been a long time with us, it's, you know, maybe one day at a time. Yeah. But, um, was there resistance? Was there, because a lot of athletes are used to getting like a week at a time or even like a month at a I think a week at a time is probably the most common, like you get your whole week. Well, I used to get, I've had two coaches prior to Cam since I started triathlon and both of those coaches, I had got them four weeks in advance. Um, so when I started with Cam, yeah, it was a huge adjustment. Like I really was quite anxious about it, more like for the planning and things like that. But like seriously now, and I, when I tell people, oh, I don't get my training till the day before, they like nearly drop dead and can't believe it. But now it's so normal to me and it makes so much sense. Um, like I don't want to know any sooner. Like sometimes um, when we're in maybe a really important phase of Ironman training, you know, and there's those key sessions that you know you've got to get ticked off and you know are coming sometimes Cam will put two or three days in advance, like when there's a big few days coming up and I'm assuming it's like for planning and stuff that he does that. But I actually really hate knowing now, like actually hate knowing. I've actually said to him a few times, I'd prefer you like not even to put them in because I get anxious now and it makes sense, right? Like when when you don't know what's coming you can't think too far ahead you know the focus is just like what's in front of you and what you've got to do like sometimes when I see those if he puts it in two days in advance and I see 21 800s on the track like I'm already freaking out 48 hours in advance and like not sleeping properly in that because I'm concerned about a session that's two days away so yeah it, it definitely was a huge adjustment in the beginning but now I can't imagine it any other way and it just just totally makes sense because you could be wake up and be highly fatigued one day and what's the point doing a session just because it was on a four-week cycle or something if you're feeling terrible. So I really like that about Cam's structure. 
Yeah, I like the, um, you know, we, it's, there's so many benefits to it. I mean, practicing presence, practicing um, the joy of what you're given and the challenge of what you're given in the moment and having trust, obviously, in your coach that he's going to provide the workout that he believes is necessary for you in that time. Exactly. Um, same thing goes with days off too, like prescribing days off consistently, like a standard day. Yes. You know, what if you feel good that day? What if you feel exactly. amazing and you want yes. to, um, you want, you want to capitalize on that. So yeah. you want to keep building that momentum, right? Yeah. I a hundred percent could, couldn't agree more. Yeah. Yeah. I, we, we, it takes a little bit of, um, uh, well, first you have the resistance and then it takes acceptance and then <clears throat> you begin to forget about it. So yeah. most athletes that have come to us with resistance to that philosophy are now in the same boat you are. They're in the same yeah. mindset of like, I actually prefer it this way. Yeah. Um, has, has, that changed, um, has that changed the way you approach any other things outside of your life than just training? Were you more, I guess it's go with the flow versus like things have to be a particular way? Yeah, you know, like I don't know if, it's because of that style of programming that's made me go more with the flow. To be honest, I think it's just getting older. <laughs> I think like as I've got older, because I am quite a, it's funny, like I think I have a bit of anxiety naturally and I, I'm quite outgoing. I like to be organized, planned, very structured and routine. But at the same time, I'm like, if I'm around other people, I'd prefer to just do what they want to do because, yeah, I just feel more comfortable just going with the flow. So I, I'm kind of a different dynamic in that way, I guess. But, yeah, I don't know if it's because of the style of programming, just knowing 24 and hours in advance. I think it's honestly just as I've got older, I've learned that it's easier just to not stress over little things and it's easier just to go with the flow and be more present day to day. Yeah, I think as you same thing, like as you get as you get older, it's like you we play the same game. Like we've been playing the same game now for quite some time and you realize that like everything kind of always just works out. It does. And <laughs> if it disappoints you, like you're fine. You're, yeah, you're the world fine. Keep like, spinning. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You yeah. know the yeah, the earth is still rotating and so um that's one of the things that I tell my mind all the time like this is not a big deal. This is not yeah. a big deal. Like just let it go. Let it go. This is not a big deal. And uh yeah, there is that bit of wisdom that comes with age naturally, which is so nice. Like that's a bonus of aging. There's some so other much things. Wisdom comes yes. with age. I was actually just thinking this before we started speaking. It's amazing how wise you get as you get older. And this is no joke. Like every year you kind of have this light bulb. I'm like, oh, wow, I don't really need to worry about that anymore. I don't need to think you, every year. This must just go on and on, you know, until like you're 60 or something. And then you get all this wisdom and then you die. It's kind of like really <laughs> sad. <laughs> but it takes you your entire life to get this wise. And then it's like you're gone. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Um, yeah. Like, do you think, like, okay, let's, let's dive into your story a little bit and, and, where am I, where I'm going right now, just intuitively is kind of into this phase of your life where you were just working, 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 and perhaps, yeah, like, and you were younger. Um, 
not having that wisdom, do you think there was like part of that, like maybe that control or perfectionism that really drove into that workaholism? Workaholism is that a word? I just made it up. Yeah, we'll we'll make it a word. That's fine. Okay. Um, yeah, control was probably a big thing for me uh, in my early twenties. Like I had to be in control of all situations. I don't really know how I got got caught up in that lifestyle. To be completely honest, like I was, as you said in the introduction, I was quite sporty when I was young. And I often think about like when I lost that, like when that transition was that I became unhealthy and when it first started. And when I think back, I came from quite a disciplined household, um, my parents were amazing, but they were very young when they had us. Like my mum was, my parents were like 19 when they had me. They'd had three children by the age of 22 and they worked so hard, like loved them to death, came from nothing, worked two jobs each, you know, to support us kids and stuff. But we came from a very disciplined household. Like we didn't have heaps of money. We were like doing chores by, you know, five years old and not, we didn't get pocket money. It's just what you had to do. So we were like taught work ethic from a very young age. And even like during sport and stuff, my dad coached me. So I was always, I think, like pushed harder than everybody else. Um, It was never good enough. You know, I was always like working harder and pushing harder and and never got told, oh, you're you're amazing or anything like that. It was kind of like you're always trying to be better. And I think uh, when I left home, uh, when I was 17, finished school, moved to the city, it was like all of a sudden I didn't have this discipline around me. Like I didn't have anyone to tell me what to do. or And I really think that that was the sort of catalyst to it, you know, like I, oh, no one can tell me what to eat or like where I've got to be or what I've got to do. So it just starts as oh, I'm going to eat this or I'm going to go and do this and it just escalates before you know it. Like it's just escalated and yeah, you just become super, super unhealthy. But it makes sense, right? You had all this discipline, you had all this structure, um, you know, practices and, you know, basketball must have been like relentless competing at that level at such a young age. And it makes sense that when all of that gets lifted, you swing far to the other side. Yes. And, um, and you know, that's a, that's, having that ability to kind of swing to the extreme is really something that it takes to be a professional athlete, right? Yeah. Like you've got to be able to to swing to that extreme. And yeah. so it could be, would you say like it's it's a gift, but it can also be your worst enemy? Well, I'd be calling that, let's give that little gift a name <laughs> called addictive personality, shall we? <laughs> Something along those lines. I think we're trying to say that that's what that might be. I have an addictive personality, <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it's all or nothing. And yeah, I guess when I once I swung that way, even though I was partying and super unhealthy, I was very, very focused and driven in the career space. So I guess I took a lot of that, the same attributes and things you need to be a great athlete, even from my younger years, like that discipline, that work ethic, getting up, that routine every day. I just took that across to my work life at a young age pretty much Um, because, yeah, I went moved to the city for university, but 
started working because I had to pay my own way. Like my parents didn't pay my uni fees or anything like that. So I was working part-time while I was going to uni and I just fell in love with work, fell in love with career. I stopped doing uni like a year and a half into the course and went and worked full-time because I just got obsessed with like career, making money, being important, succeeding in my job. So yeah, I guess that is a very strong trait of mine is that like I'm all or nothing in whatever I'm doing. Yeah. Did you have like, were there people around you that were concerned for your health? I, the only, uh, I think mum and dad mentioned my weight a couple of times. Um, so we're talking a 13 year period. So from when I, when I left school to when I did my first triathlon was about 13 years. And I think maybe twice I remember mum and dad like mentioning offhand my weight. But of course, like I snapped and told them to F off or whatever I told, like got angry and defensive about it, of course. And actually, since I've lost all the weight now, I'll say to mum and dad, like when I'm looking at old photos, I'm like, why didn't you guys tell me? Like, look at me. <laughs> look how big I was. Like, why didn't you say anything? Like, seriously, not even as a joke. Like, why didn't you say, Renee, like, we're really concerned about you? And mum just says, because, sweetheart, that's your personality. Like you're so, you would have just got so defensive and probably not spoken to us for like months. You know, that's just the way you are. And they felt, I guess, that they'd brought me up well enough that eventually I would figure it out for myself. And I think that's the thing with any addiction or anyone that's in a bad place in life. You can have all the support and all the people in the world around you telling you but until you have your rock bottom moment or your light bulb moment for wanting to change, no amount of people telling you is going to change anything really. Yeah. Can you imagine that as a parent, right? Like I, I, we don't have two-legged children. We have one four-legged child. And but I mean, could you imagine? I know my parents did it for me just because I had, I lived on the edge. I had a bit of a reckless, I had some reckless years. And yeah. um, just having that trust, like, okay, we, she's got a good head on her shoulders. We raised her right. Like, we got to let her find her way. Because, I mean, you can't change for anybody. You had to do it for yourself. And, that, and that, that motivation has to come from within. Yeah. And like, there's even an instance I remember when we started our business, my mom actually moved to Melbourne, moved to the city like five hours away from our family home to come and like work and do reception work for us when we first started out in our business just to help us out. Um, and I, this is disgusting, but I remember this is how bad I was, how unhealthy I was. Sometimes I think when I tell my story and we talk about like my weight, people go, oh yeah, she's a little bit overweight or whatever. They don't realize like what a bad state I was in for my age. I remember mum coming to work with me in the morning. So I, I would always leave and be heading to the office at 7am, like very early. And she was in the car with me and I'd stop at the service station and get a Red Bull, like a full sugar Red Bull, not a sugar-free one even. And I would be having a Red Bull and a cigarette in the car, like driving to the office in the morning with my mom in the passenger seat, 
And she never once said, you're disgusting, put that out, or that's just, like, she never said that to me. I can't, but blows my mind thinking back. Like, no breakfast, up, out of bed, shower, Red Bull, cigarette on the way to the office because, of course, when you're overweight, you tell yourself you don't you don't know why you're overweight. You don't really eat that much. You don't know why you're overweight. You don't eat breakfast. I don't eat breakfast, so I don't understand why I'm so overweight. You don't eat till, like, lunchtime generally when you're obese. So, yeah, that that's the stuff I was doing, yeah, and mum never once said to me, like, that's disgusting or don't do that or anything like that. Did that did that change at all when you were making the transition when you were losing the weight? Did any did anything change in that family environment? Were, was were they more vocal or was it was it a similar? Um, you know, she's no. doing what she's doing. We love her. And, yeah, yeah, I think it was more like she's doing what she's doing. And I guess in my parents' defense, because I do have that bit of addictive personality, perhaps they were like just sitting back probably cautious not to say anything because they've probably seen me go through phases of things before and they probably didn't want to say something in case they were thinking, let's see how long this lasts for. (laughs) So, yeah, (laughs) they didn't say anything. They just sort of like let me go, let me do my thing. And it wasn't until I'd had all the weight off and it was starting to get more serious about triathlon that then they got like more vocal and more supportive of coming to watch triathlons because they could see that it really was like a life change and it was an ingrained life change by that point. Do you remember any other moments like that where you look back and you go, oh my God, like I, I smoke, I used to smoke, um, like in college and high school and things. And I remember sometimes waking up and just being like, oh, like just, you know, that ashtray in your mouth. Um, do you, do you remember moments like that of just like, what Every am I doing? for like a few <laughs> years of my life. <laughs> Yeah, because I guess not only was I, and I don't talk about this part of the story so much, but not only was I like corporate world and smoking and drinking and stuff, but I actually went through the nightclub phase for probably really quite seriously for probably a year. And when I say quite seriously, I think anyone that's been caught up in the clubbing world will understand what I'm talking about when I say quite seriously like I was living I was basically in a nightclub from Friday afternoon until Monday morning most weekends um so I did that whole nightclubbing phase for yeah a whole year of my life so yeah there was lots of times waking up feeling like an ashtray and hung over there is so I could there's too many of those types of times to count, honestly, over that 13-year period. Like, I don't want to make out, I wasn't an alcoholic or anything like that, but, like, if I went out, I went out, like, went out for a good with, time. You yeah, know, all or nothing. Yeah, yeah, all or nothing, exactly. <laughs> I didn't go out for, like, one glass of wine. I went out to get, like, drunk and have a great time, yeah. Yeah, going for the win, for sure. Yeah, exactly, of course, last man standing. <laughs> And I, um, I think I read. I think it was on the timeline. You have a great timeline on your, on your website that shows pictures, and you know, I mean, it's really, it's quite extensive. It's, it's really well put together. Um, but you had talked about like, you know, you had done some dieting and things like that, but just, just nothing, nothing worked, nothing stuck. No, I, I, I knew that I was overweight, but I think looking back now, I was in denial about how big I really was. Like I never weighed myself or anything like that regularly. Um, 
I tried like quitting smoking two or three times over that sort of 13, 14 year period, but always ended up smoking again. I tried maybe seriously to lose weight, probably only like twice in that 13 or 14 year period and maybe for like two to three weeks maximum at a time and never got anywhere with it. So I'd say my weight would have fluctuated like a 10 kilo sort of fluctuation for pretty much most of that time. And the only reason, I actually think I got bigger than 104 kilos, but the only reason I know 104 kilos is an actual thing is because I went to a health retreat. Uh, I can't remember the year it was, but I'm guessing it was around about 2011. Um, I was just working 60, 70 hours a week. I was in the office every single day, Saturdays and Sundays, and I, my business partner came into the office one morning and just walked into my office and he said, I don't care where you go for the next week, but you're not coming into the office. Like, I do not care where you go, but you're not to be in here. Because he could see that I was obviously at a point, like I just wasn't taking holidays. I had no friendships. I had no life outside of work. I was just working myself into the ground and obviously getting really unhealthy at the same time. So when I went to that uh, I chose to go to a health retreat, but I didn't choose to go there to lose weight. I chose it because they said like entrepreneurs go there to have like a break and a detox and stuff. So <laughs> that's why I went there and they did health testing, um, like basic health testing when you arrived. And I've got the statistics somewhere, but basically they had you ride a stationary bike, like literally just turning the pedals over, nothing hard at all. And my heart rate was 150 BPM just doing that, just sitting on the exercise bike. They weighed you and that's how I remember that I was 104 kilos. Um, and the other, my blood pressure, it was something crazy like 145 over 101 or something like that. Um, so, yeah, that was that, that was that time. Were, did you ever get put on any kind of medication to help regulate that stuff or were you kind of like a ticking bomb? You're a bit of a ticking bomb. Yeah, I remember every time I went to the doctors, like if I had to, if I was sick or if I had to get a prescription for the pill or something like that, um, every time I went to the doctors, every single time my blood pressure was high, but they would say to you, um, oh, is your blood pressure normally high? And I'd be like, oh, no, it's not normally high. You know, you would just lie about it because you knew, I knew, like I knew deep down that I was unhealthy and that's why my blood pressure was high. But you just white lie out of, everything. Yeah. So it obviously was never bad enough that any doctor sort of said to me, like, we're in dire straits here, but it was certainly heading that way. Yeah. So you go to this health retreat, but it's still a couple of years before you go to that triathlon. So it was just business as usual when you came back, like you took yeah. the week, came back, yep. right back into it. Felt really calm and relaxed and stuff <laughs> and ate healthy probably for like another week and straight back into old habits. So it wasn't until I watched that first triathlon really that I literally had like a kind of life-changing moment. Did you, uh, were you smoking up until that, that time or how did you stop that? Yeah, you were. Yeah, I was smoking the entire time. And even when I start, first started doing triathlon, like after watching that first triathlon, that was in November 2013. Um, some friends of mine just said, oh, our friend is doing a triathlon I was visiting them and they just said, oh, our friend is doing a triathlon. Did you want to come watch? And I just said, yeah, of course, no problem. And I was just standing on the sidelines of the race that day and 
if anyone's been to Noosa in Queen in Queensland in Australia, it's just stunning. Like it's one of the biggest triathlons in the Southern Hemisphere and the atmosphere. It's on the beach, on the coast, so it's just beautiful. But I just remember looking around and feeling so out of place, like so out of place, really unhealthy, really big and in like designer, like maxi dress, like just so out of place, my clothes and everything amongst all these sporty people, hair extensions and all this stuff, Um, fake tan. Um, And I just, yeah, was standing on the sidelines and thought, gosh, there's like, big people and like fit people and old people and young people. There's just, I just couldn't get over the variety of people like running around out on this course. And on the sidelines, everyone was just having a great time. Like everyone was just laughing. And I also felt that no one was looking at me, which was strange because I felt so out of place and everything there. But I think anyone that does triathlon knows it's such a welcoming type of environment. So I didn't feel like I was getting judged or anything, but I just had a moment and I was like, gosh, I swam a little bit when I was a kid. Like maybe I could do one of these next year. I just felt this overwhelming urge to want to see if I could challenge myself and do this triathlon. So it wasn't until then, that was November, 2013. I signed up for the race when I got home, but still didn't do anything about it until the 2nd of January, I just went to a local bike store and bought a road bike just with the flat pedals. And that was like the start of my journey, but I was still smoking and I was still smoking for, I would say for the, like probably the first month or two Well, when I started exercising. I don't remember. I wish like if there's one regret I have, it's not keeping a diary of the exercise and stuff I did in those first few months because I just get asked all the time and also asked all the time like when I quit smoking. So I would love to have a record of how that process worked and when I did cut down. But I just remember um, everything became about wanting to be able to finish the triathlon. So then everything else is secondary to that. Like when you find something you're so passionate about, everything else starts to revolve around that and you just start to make better decisions because of that one goal that you have. Mm. Yeah, so there was, there's all this contrast in your life versus what you're seeing at the triathlon. And in contrast, you understand, or if you're awake to it, you can actually see that it's a gift because then you see what you do want, right? Yes. And then when you know what you do want, like you get that inner pull, there's no stopping. I think where we get stuck is we don't know what we want. We don't spend time um, exploring that that environment, Um, and it must have taken a lot for you to go to that race. You know, the the way, or maybe because your friends were going, you were just going up to have a good time. But I mean, what a gift! What a like in the face, like the energy that happens at a triathlon. It's so contagious. It's 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 such a a a pull that um, you can't deny it. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like it's just funny how life has a way of working itself out. And I don't think, like, who would have thought, you know, 10 years ago, if you had said to me, where do I want to be in life? It wouldn't, I had never even seen a triathlon. Like, it just, it's like sliding doors. I wouldn't have even known it existed or whatever. And that's, sometimes I think we get overwhelmed. Like, people will say, what are you passionate about? And people, like, really think about it. And they're like, oh, I don't know. So they think that they're never going to know. But you just have to keep 
being curious and being open-minded and saying yes to things, I think, until you have that moment where you're like, oh, wow, that seems really interesting. And then you kind of start to follow that. And then all of a sudden this whole realm of like opportunity and opens up from that just because you follow that one tiny little thing that made you happy or made you feel good in that moment. And that's all that happened with me with triathlon. I didn't sit there on that sideline of that Noosa triathlon in 2013 and go, you know what? I know what I want to do. I want to be a professional triathlete. Like that's not how it happened. I just went, this makes me feel good. Maybe I could do this. And then the next 12 months became about chasing this small goal. And then it all like escalated from there. And you progressed pretty quickly as an age grouper, but like that first triathlon, I think you were like, what, 252nd female. <laughs> so it wasn't like right off the bat, you like went in and won it. But um, when did it, when did you start to pick up momentum and you were like, man, I actually am good at this? Um, the first one was really bad. Uh, 252nd female, as you said. And I just remember feeling really disappointed when I crossed the line of my first triathlon, just at how bad I was, but very motivated to get better. Isn't that then, funny though? Like yes. growing up, it was like, it was never good enough, never good enough. And all you yeah. wanted to do was finish and you meet the goal and it's not good enough. It's not good enough. Never good enough. No one remembers second place or 252nd place for that matter. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, but it's everyone just says, oh, well, you must have been so proud to finish that. And I think most people would be really proud, you know, to finish their first race and everything. But I just remember I was disgusted at myself and how slow I was. And I don't mean that disrespectfully to anyone at all, but I have been feel like I've been good at most things in my life. So this was kind of like the first thing that I was really bad at. Um, so the first few were nothing great at all. I did my first Olympic distance in August and then I did the Noosa Triathlon, which was my whole goal. Uh, That was in the November of 2014. But it was actually at the Noosa Triathlon before that, like in the few months leading into the Noosa Triathlon, I started to think like, well, I'm actually not that terrible at this. Like, I'd progressed a lot, I think, in that middle section of the year. And obviously, by that point, most of the weight had come off. Like when I did the first triathlon, I was still 85 kilos. So I was 20 kilos lighter, but I was still 85. So I was still quite heavy. By the time I got to the Noosa triathlon, I was like less than 65 kilos. So I'd lost like another 20 kilos. Um, And at the Noosa Triathlon, there's like maybe 250 girls in my age group and I came like 25th. So that, I guess, I never finished that and went, oh, wow, I'm quite good at this. But I was like, wow, that's like pretty good, you know, 25th out of 250 girls. Like I started this sport six months ago, learned how to ride a bike and ran my first 5K without stopping only a couple of months ago. So, yeah, that was a moment where I was like, I think I could get, I think I could be an age grouper that kind of maybe like in a couple of years, I could be an age grouper that finishes on the podium. That's what I thought at that point. And then, so I think 2014 was like my newbie year, like a lot of firsts that year and losing all the weight, quitting smoking. 2015, 
I did my first uh, half Ironman. I did two half Ironman. So I did my first half Ironman. I came eighth. And then I did another half Ironman in June and came third. So it was in that one that I was like, well, even my first half Ironman, I think I did five hours on the dot, 501. And I didn't know because I didn't really know much about half Ironman, but like people were saying to me like, 501 is pretty good. Like for your first half Ironman, it's pretty good, pretty good effort. And then in the June, I did um, my second half Ironman and did like 450 or something and came third in my age group. And I think it was then I was like, oh, wow, I think I could be a decent age grouper. And then I did my first Ironman. I don't recommend this to anybody, by the way. First Ironman in August, like a few months after that half Ironman. And I won my age group at that race. And then Kona was six weeks after that. So I qualified for Kona and like went to Kona. So that 2015 was crazy. Like first half Ironman, first Ironman, first Kona. So I guess it was that year that I was like, wow, like I think if I work really hard, I can be just one of those age groupers where, you know, they're kind of known in the sport as an elite age grouper and always finishing on the podium. Um, that was, I guess that year was a bit of a turning point for me that this is going to become a sort of serious part of my life. But at no point was I thinking about going professional at that point. Did you have, uh, so when you did that first Ironman, was there any awareness, any sense of Kona at that point? Like Kona existed or that this great race is that you had a potential because you know how age groupers are all wrapped up in that. Um. Yeah, I certainly knew that it existed because my best friend at the time, she had won Ironman New Zealand earlier in the year and I actually surprised her and like flew over to the race with her to support her. So I had booked Funny How Life Works. She, in the March, she had won Ironman New Zealand, qualified for Kona. So I had booked accommodation to go with her to Kona. Like I was so excited for her. We were like best friends. I'm like, I'm coming to Kona to train with you for a couple of weeks prior. I'm going to take a couple of weeks off work, come and watch you race. I'm going to drink cocktails on the beach and like go out and have the best time, you know. So I had booked accommodation and everything for four weeks to go to Kona back six months prior to even doing my first Ironman. So when I was preparing for Ironman Japan, the Ironman that I did, I it was my first Ironman. So, of course, all the focus was on Renee's doing her first Ironman and the goal is just to finish. You know what you tell yourself when you're doing your first Ironman. I just need to finish, like all the fluffy. You just got to get through the race. But I would be completely lying if I said that I didn't have internal thoughts that like, I didn't think it was a high chance that I could win, but I certainly had in the back of my mind that it wasn't impossible. Like, it, But I didn't go around voicing that because I was too scared to for a mm. start, um, would have been scared what people would have thought. And my coach just kept saying, we just got to cross. It's just your first time, man. It's very different to everything else. You've just got to get across the line. Like don't even think about times and anything else. So... Yeah, I'd be lying if I said that it didn't cross my mind a few times before going into the race, yeah. Did you have to fight for that win? Do you remember? I won by like an hour and 10 minutes. Okay, so it that, would like, be, that would be a hard no. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, it was actually the coolest first Ironman experience because I had never done an Ironman, so I didn't know any different. Like if I said to you guys, okay, this was 
do you want to go and do an Ironman? The swim is in a lake. The bike, you climb two mountain passes. It's almost 3,000 metres of climbing on the bike, Um, two mountain passes. Some of it's there's a few sections on gravel. The run, half of it or the first 20 kilometres is on trail and it's a lot of climbing and hills in the first 20K and then it's quite flat around the lake on the second half. Most people will be like, "Uh, I'm not doing that for my first time. (laughs) But I just didn't know any different. No one told me the elevation or anything. I knew that the bike course was hard. That's why we actually chose it because I was naturally quite good on the bike Um, and, yeah, like we chose it because we thought, oh, I'd be probably – good for me because I'm quite a good bike rider and it's a really tough bike course. Um, so at the race, it was one of those in Japan, they only had like two tracking points on the bike. So like no one knew where anyone was. So when I got off the bike, I didn't know like if I had a lead or anything like that. No one knew. We knew I was in the lead, but we had no idea by how much. So it wasn't until my coach and my mum and that were there supporting and I kept seeing them on the run. I was like, you know, am I like, what's happening here? Is there anyone behind me or anything like that? And they're like, nah, we think the traffic must be broken. It's been like 40 minutes. Like no one's come, like no one else has come through. And then it was, wasn't until the 20K mark of the run, my coach just said, uh, you've got like an hour and 10, hour and 10 minute lead or something. Just, we're just going to walk run the last 20 K cause you're going to be going to Kona in like six weeks if you finish right. this. Right. So I had the best time, like the last 20, like I think my marathon was like four hours and five minutes or something because I just like hugging people and walking and running and having a party for the last 20k it was actually a pretty cool first time I love it so you're like prepping for Kona before you even get the (laughs) win you're like we gotta take this pace way back we gotta save the legs for the big island (laughs) that's awesome so as you're okay so now you're like full bore triathlon but what's going on on the work front did you like did that kind of because of triathlon, we're like, did your hours level out a little um, bit or? Not a, well, oh, they definitely came back from the obsessed stage and they, it was a good thing actually because I yeah. pulled, pulled back from 60 hours to 40 hours <laughs> to like a normal work week. So definitely during that 2015 period and just starting to train a bit more and stuff, I was still working full time, um, but no more Saturdays and Sundays in the office and stuff. Cause so that by that point, it was actually probably quite a healthy balance. Like the only time in my life I've had a healthy balance, to be honest. Um, so it was probably a really good balance during 2015 and even 2016, still working full time and also doing what every other age grouper does, you know, like fitting in training around full time work. Yeah. So, when does becoming a professional come into your awareness? Because you turned professional in August 2017, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It was 2016. Uh, After I did Ironman Australia in May. So that was my third Ironman. I'd done Japan and Kona at the end of 15. Then I wanted to go back to Kona. Uh, So I did Ironman Australia in the May of 2016. And this was another like light bulb kind of earth shattering moment. I came third in my age group at that Ironman and we were at the award ceremony 
and Beth McKenzie won that year, the pro race. And you know what it's like as an age group or at the like award ceremonies and stuff. Like half the time you're not even really listening to speeches because you're just having the best time with your squad mates and like a bit of a party and stuff like that. And anyway, for whatever reason, I was quiet and listening to her winner's speech. And I can't remember her exact words, but it was something along the lines of, um, you know, if someone had said to me 10 years ago that I'd be standing up here today at the age of 38 as the winner in the professional female, as winner of a professional female Ironman race, like I would have said that they were crazy. And at the time I would have been 32 or 33 or something like that. And I just like was mind blown. I'm like, she's 38 and she's just won an Ironman. Like I've never even, never even considered like because I just thought like who in the world decides to be a professional athlete at the age of 33 or whatever I was at the time. Like it just seemed completely crazy to me. So I'd never even given it any thought at all until that moment and I heard her say that and I was like, she's 38 and she's up there winning an Ironman. Like I'm 33 and I've just started this sport like two years ago. Like who – and look where I am now. Like who who knows what I could do in like another five years or something. So it actually, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I didn't say anything to anybody. And I got my spot to Kona at that race and I remember going home to go back to work. And I just remember, I like vividly remember being in the shower the first on the Tuesday or Wednesday, whatever day it was that I was going back to work after the race and just feeling this overwhelming sense of like sadness that, I wasn't a professional triathlete. I don't know, like it was just this feeling of, gosh, I think I want to do this for my job. Like I don't want to go back to work. And just had this feeling, and not because I hated work, because I loved my work, but it it had ignited something in me hearing her say that, like something I'd never even considered before. And like we were just talking about before, once you see something and you have that overwhelming feeling, like you just can't stop thinking about it. And that's when I think we know that we're, we're making the right decisions in life is when you can't, you cannot stop thinking about it. So I had that moment in the shower and then I guess I was like in my own head, shit, like I think I want to be a professional triathlete. Like what do I even do from here? Like what, what what's the next step? So I actually made the decision by myself. Like people often ask me, oh, you know, did you go to your coach and ask what they thought or whatever? And I didn't go to anyone. I made the decision in my head, this is what I want to do. And I think I did that because I didn't want anyone to tell me that I was stupid or I couldn't do it because I believed in myself. Um, So I made the decision myself and then I um, spoke to my business partner and said, mate, like, can we please have breakfast? I need to talk to you. So it was maybe like a week later, we sat down, have a breakfast and I just said to him, I really want to do this, but I can't do it unless I cut back at work. Like there's no way I can compete as a professional working full time. Uh, And he was just amazing. Like he just said, we've got to make this work. Like who gets this opportunity in life? Like people don't get to make these choices. So we had a number of like really difficult conversations over the sort of following month and decided that, yep, um, I could cut back work to three days a week. So my plan was in 2016, I thought, okay, I've made this decision. I want to go pro, told my business partner, 
the plan was, okay, what I'll do is have uh, cut back to three days a week and have a really good training block into Kona as an age grouper, aim for the podium at Kona. And if I get that podium in Kona, then yeah, I'll make that leap and take my professional license. So I cut back work to three days a week and then I did a lead-in race to Kona in Bintan in Indonesia, an island in Indonesia like a month before Kona and collapsed like with really, really bad heat stroke and it was intense, ended up in intensive care and everything. So I had really bad race there, which resulted then in having a really bad race in Kona only like a month later. So then I was like, well, shit, what do I do now? I've actually had a really bad race at Kona. Like I've come 40th or something. Like maybe I'm not good enough to be pro, but yeah, I'd still, it didn't change my mind. I wanted to do it. Um, So I stuck with the plan and I had to then qualify for my pro license. So stuck with the plan, worked three days a week and then the plan obviously once I got fit again was I had to like go and win um, a 70.3 to qualify for my professional license, which I did in the June 2017. And then, yeah, did my first pro race at the end of August 2017. So I was still working that entire year, the three days a week. And then I did those first two pro races at the end of 17. I'm just laughing because I remember how I felt after the races. I got smashed. Like I came last, I think, in both of them. And it was another one of those, like the same feeling of crossing the line at my first triathlon. I was just disgusted in myself at how bad I was. And I got on my phone, got on the phone to my coach at the time after the second pro race. I did two pro races, my first two within a fortnight. And I got on the phone with him and said, this is not happening. I'm not coming last again. And I need to, fin- I need to train full time. Like I can't. I've only been in the sport three and a half years. I cannot expect to compete with these girls working three days a week. I just can't do it. So I need to go and see somehow figure out how I'm going to be able to train full time. So my poor business partner, another discussion happened with him at the end of 2017. And thankfully enough, he supported me. And as of January 2018, um, I completely stepped away from the business and I've been training full-time since January 2018. So it sounds like that leap from uh, being an elite age grouper to a professional triathlete is pretty big. It escalated quite quickly, (laughs) actually. (laughs) These girls are fast. (laughs) And it is like, seriously, uh, that is one of my biggest, when I was an age grouper, um, and it's completely natural because I think this is the thing with our sport. We're all on the same course, right? And all on the same day and everything. When I was an age grouper, I'd, I'd look at my times as I imagine a lot of age groupers do, especially elite age groupers, and compare my times to the pros. And I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm like pretty much riding like within a minute or so of the pros and like I'm swimming within a minute or two of the pros. But you absolutely cannot compare. It's like chalk and cheese. Like when you are racing professional, you have to be so strong because you don't get the draft in the swim. You don't get any draft in like not when you're an age group, but there's just constantly people around you all the time. So you don't realize how much draft, even though you're not drafting, just the, the fact of people passing you and stuff all the time, you're getting like 
a second, two seconds, a second, two seconds of draft all the time when that happens in an age group field. But in a professional field, it's like a solo time trial. So you're swimming alone. And if you're not swimming alone, you're swimming absolute full gas above threshold to stay on fast feet. And then you're basically, it's a solo time trial with no one coming past you. You're generally on your own. So then you start the run absolutely stuffed, like because you've just been working so hard solo for the whole race. It's just so different to racing age group. And I actually think that that was one of my biggest lessons I learned. And I actually regretted it when I turned pro. I wish I could apologize to all the pros for like even comparing my times with them. I just hated the fact that I'd said, oh, I can ride as good as the pros and stuff. I just feel very embarrassed that I used to say those things because I didn't know any different. It's completely different race. How do the ego and the mindset take those? Because you just painted a beautiful picture of like time trialing alone on the bike and you're just trying to play catch up. Well, maybe there's a chance, but then you get to the run and you notice like that they're all out. There's like nobody left in transition. Like you're the last person, or I'm not saying you were. Maybe you were. You were. (laughs) (laughs) How do you rationalize? Let's get after it. Let's let, how, how do we keep that? How do we keep this engine moving forward despite this is just one race? Yeah, that's another part of racing pro is just. It's kind of like in a job when you're getting rejected all the time, you know, like it's another part of racing pros. You have to be next level mentally strong because it's not nice coming in those first couple of races, like coming in and seeing no bikes left or that you're the last one out on the run and then having to find it internally to like push yourself to come last, like to push yourself and even know that if you run as hard as you can for 21k or 42k you're just you're only doing it for yourself because you're not even going to make up any places if you're that far behind so it is another level of like mental strength that you have to have um racing professionally yeah i'm not going to lie i don't yeah i don't know if there's any you just you just this is one of the things you just have to do you have to do it for your own pride is and get it done but For me, it became, well, it was a huge motivating force Mm -hmm. um, to get better. Like when I first made the decision to go pro, the big driver for me was I am going to prove that someone who hasn't been a lifetime athlete and someone that was clinically obese and packing, smoking a packet of cigarettes a day just five years ago, I'm going to prove that you can, like you can become a professional, you can change your life, you can be a professional athlete, you can compete with these women. And when I first started the sport, like I thought I would have been happy. Well, I would have been. At the time, I would have been happy. I said to my coaches, I am happy if I finish mid-pack. Like if by the end of my career, which I think is only another four years or whatever, a couple of years ago, if I'm finishing mid-pack in pro fields in every race, I'm pretty happy, like given my background, like no athletic background or anything like that and where I've come from. I think that's pretty good result. And that's all my goals were when I first went pro. Um, but yeah, I'm transitioning now. Yeah, what do they, <laughs> what do, what do they look like? <laughs> but we've learned that you are, yeah. you're all or nothing. So uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's, so what's the dream? Changing. What's the dream? Um. Yeah, it's changed quite a lot. I 
the first 2018, I was finishing like sixth, seventh, fifth, that kind of range. And then 2019 uh, was a year I started finishing like fourths and fifths, fifth, fifth, fourth. And, yeah, it's just a natural evolution and progression, isn't it? And then it's just like, God, I'm just like just the podium is just there kind of thing. Um, And then obviously 2020 was like kind of a breakout season for me. Um, First podium at Ironman, third there, fifth at Sunny Coast in a really strong field but very small margins between the sort of top five and getting that – Wild card at Daytona and yeah, obviously finishing 31st at Daytona. That's not, no great feat, but you know, it was a world class field and there was quite a few women behind me that have been at Kona the last couple of years. So even though on paper it's not a fantastic result, it still was a really good result for me. So yeah, the goalposts have definitely changed now. Um, I want to win an Ironman. That's my immediate goal. I want that to happen this year if possible. Um, I want to be an Ironman winner. I want to get to Kona uh, and I want to be potentially by the end of the year. I hate saying this out loud because I just, (laughs) I don't want anyone to hold me accountable to it. (laughs) No, I do. I secretly do. Um, But I'm ranked like 66 in there. I was ranked 102 last year. I've moved up to 66 in the PTO rankings and like I would really like to be in the top 30 um, by the end of the year. So yeah, my mindset has changed. And I did think that this, when I first turned pro, I thought maybe this year would be the last year of my career, but just can't give up now. It's like, just done too much work and got to keep chipping away. Yeah. And you're like, you can taste it. Like you can taste it. It's It's, right there. It's right there. Girl, you cannot turn your back on it now. I ran cans. It was three minutes off the win. Like Mm. it was right there. So we got to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I know you will. And it's, I love your, the, the story and really like, how the goals have changed, um, you know, age grouper, like, you know, the going up the distances in triathlon, it's like, it's just a little bite at a time, but it's the consistency. So as we wrap this up, one thing that's on your website that I just, oh, I love it so much. You talk about how you just really want to share that message that one, it's never too late, but two, it's not that hard. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, like how, how can you speak to that to somebody who's like, I keep falling, I keep falling back into those bad habits. How did she get to the other side of it and look at where she is now? Like, how can she say it's not hard? Yeah. It is really hard for a couple of months. Idiot, like it is. So it's a lie saying it's not hard. No, it is really hard. But I think it's harder if you don't expect it to be hard. Like mm. you, if you're going to make a huge life change, the problem I think in society these days is everyone likes to fluff around and pretend things aren't hard, you know, and like, oh, it's going to be okay. Well, the reality is it is going to be extremely hard for the first couple of months. Like there's no denying that. But I think the really important thing and the message I try and get across to people is if you're doing the right thing 
Like if you find something that you love and you're heading in the right direction, your desire to get better or to keep pursuing that will overcome everything. And if it's not, if you keep failing, if you, if you honestly keep trying and keep failing and then this pattern keeps happening, I just don't think that you're pursuing the right thing. And, you know, I use the, the example like the gym example. Like people, and I see all this now looking back because it's like my old lifestyle, you know, you, you, you can see people. If you go and sit on a corner and like watch or near a gym and just watch people go in and out, like people are just going through the motions. They're just going to the gym because society says that you should exercise for one hour each day. So they're just going to tick that box to say that they've done it, but they don't truly love it. Like they're not waking up in the morning going, gosh, I can't wait to go to the gym today. So yeah, whether it's if you keep trying it for, tri- you know, using triathlon example, if you keep trying and you can't get yourself out of bed every day and this keeps carrying on this pattern, I don't want to be like the bearer of bad news, but maybe you haven't found the right, maybe triathlon's not the right thing for you or you haven't found the right thing for you. So I think, yeah, a lot of it comes down to you've got to keep searching for a way to keep your body moving and it has to be something that you want to get out you want to get out of bed for each day and everything else in life will then if you're doing that and you love what you're doing and you want to get out of bed each day everything else in life will figure itself out around that and things won't seem so hard because the good moments will always overcome the like difficult moments yeah that's, that's so beautiful that's, that's, that's so beautiful those those first couple of months that's getting the momentum going, you know, like you, you've, you, you're putting the brakes on old habits and you're creating new neuro, like you're changing your brain. Like you literally yes. have to change your brain and create new neural pathways and behaviors and patterns. And then once you get into that slipstream and you're right, like you got to love it. You got to love you it. Gotta and love you got to love it. You can't, like people will say all the time too, like how do, how do you find motivation? You know, like they want to, they want like a magic bullet. They want to, like, how do I just like wake up and I'm motivated? You don't, motivation to me is a, like, it's a thing. Like I have this weird like view on motivation. Mo- motivation is just when we feel good and our relationships are good and we're eating well and we're not injured and everything's great. Of course, we're motivated. Like that's all motivation is. It's just a like consequence of everything else in life being pretty good. Like you're not, if your grandparents died and you've got like a niggle in your calf, if you've got a couple of things going on at once, you're probably not going to be motivated, right? Like it's just obvious. So if you create like structure, discipline in your day, you're just going through the motions and doing what you need to do to get better. Motivation like ebbs and flows and it comes in roundabouts. But if you just, those first couple of months, it's just really important to tick the boxes, make sure your environment's good, have discipline, have work ethic, know that it's going to be hard sometimes, just keep ticking the boxes. But then there's these beautiful moments, right, where it starts to become easier and more enjoyable. Yep. Yeah. That's you, it. And I, I think that's purpose in life. And we all have yeah. it. There's, there are things that every single person loves to do. They love to do it. So we always say, like, find what you love and do more of it. 
Yeah, I agree. Right? And it's that, it's that um, I've heard that before, like, you know, you're working hard, but you're hardly working or something. Like, we're, we're yes. working all the time. Work like, Saturday great. is like a huge work day for me, you know, and I'm fitting training and everything, but I love what I do. It doesn't yeah. feel like I'm working ever. Exactly. And that's the way it should feel. Yeah. 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 I, awesome. I, yeah, I'm just floored. I, I think <laughs> I'm, I'm so motivated right now. In this moment, <laughs> I just gave you a silver, a magic bullet. I hope it lasts. Actually, I'm going to save it yeah. for later. Might only last about fifteen tomorrow. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's so. Um, I think the most beautiful moments and 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 raw moments come out of um, pure passion and alignment uh, with your inner being and what you truly want. And you've just told an amazing story and in so many examples, you've said. Um, You've pulled upon things where you just kept going because it felt good. It felt good. Yeah. If you add it up on paper, it doesn't look like you should be doing this, but it just feels good. So I think, I think the message here is just always, always pull from your heart. Always like get, get curious, like connect with your heart, get in, get in those quiet moments, see what really um, lights you up, like what, yeah. what you can't be without and then just pursue it relentlessly. Yeah, and just check in every now and then and make sure you're not just existing. Mm, I complacency, think. yeah. Yeah, I really think like people might fob that off and go, oh, no, I'm not, I'm living. But if you really, really check in with yourself, like are you? Are you doing anything to get yourself out of your comfort zone? Are you doing anything good? Are you having like 10, 10 star moments in life or are you simply just getting up, making the kids lunch, going to work, coming home, making dinner, like, you know, just – check in with yourself and make sure you're not just existing that you you really are like pushing yourself yeah we're so much more than that mm. you know we're, yeah. we're built we're so worthy and we're so loved and we're so much we're meant for so much more um, whatever that more is you know your love might be knitting hats or gardening or going for epic long bike rides it doesn't matter it's your exactly. love and do more of it in this world Thank you so much, Renee, for a beautiful conversation. I'm, I'm grateful to be connected with you and we'll be following you closely. Where can people get more of you? Uh, I try to be as active as I can on Instagram. So Instagram is the best place, Renee Kylie underscore. I wouldn't suggest anywhere else. Actually, I have a YouTube channel, but I'm pretty lazy with putting content out. But I will try more to get It's more okay. You just up. don't love it. You just don't love <laughs> yeah. it. Love it yet. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you, got big, you got bigger goals than YouTube. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks, guys. 